Hi, and welcome to the Road to Sustainability show. For this special episode, I'm excited to share the mic with two exceptional ladies. Dr. Sarah Murdoch. Sarah is a global people and cultural leader specializing in future-proof, agile strategy based on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Rita Kakati-Shah. Rita is an award-winning gender, diversity, inclusion, and career strategist, speaker, author, and advisor. She is also the founder and CEO of UMA, empowering confidence, success, and resilience in women and minorities. We talk about diversity, inclusion, and leadership, and how much important it is to bring value to the society as a woman. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Rita. I'm, I'm super excited uh, to have you today. Uh, it's a special edition from the Road to Sustainability show, a great episode. I look forward to having a lot of experience sharing and um, telling, uh, telling us, tell, telling the audience uh, some of your tips and tricks about diversity, inclusion and ethics. Um, so let's get started. Rita, please tell us a bit of, more about you. Sure. So I'm Rita, um, born and bred Londoner, started my career in finance. Um, I was in investment banking for about 10 years. So I got into diversity and inclusion just by being one of very few women on the trading floor um, in Europe in the first place. So I kind of got into it when it wasn't even called diversity inclusion officially back in the early 2000s. I then transitioned careers into the pharmaceutical industry. I was in business development, so I was able to travel here and there around the world. And that brought me to New York, which is where I now live, um, and moved here after I got married. I have two small children who are now six and eight, and um, I took some time off to raise them and really got to see that, wow, out of all of the careers I've had, motherhood by far was the most challenging. And that is really what led to me helming Uma, which is the empowerment platform to really build confidence and boost up women and minority groups around the world. So a lot of coaching and mentoring and a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion, training and talks to corporations around the world as well. So that's me in a nutshell. So happy to be here today to discuss this with you ladies. Amazing. We have a fantastic episode uh, that we recorded a few weeks ago with Rita and I invite you to to hear it um, and to let us know what you think. Sarah, hi. Yes, hello. I am so pleased to be here, Yael and Rita. You are rock stars. You inspire me. So I'm, I'm very excited for our chat today. Just a little bit about me. I've been working in what we now call diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging for about 15 years. Um, I, I sort of start off in that way because to me, these are the terms that are sort of hot and popular at the moment. And really, I see my work as being a sort of instigator or even a trickster, you might say, of improving organizational health. I see a lot of my role as actually holding space for the anxieties and the nervousness about what comes with change. So I started out in this field as an educator. I began uh, by teaching and leading workshops and, and teams. Um, and over the years, I developed a deep expertise in the research behind this work. And I, I achieved a PhD in social impact within intercultural programs. And recently, one of my major roles, I would argue sort of one of my leadership positions, has actually been in helping folks in the West and in North America understand this whole conversation is not owned by the West, it's not owned by North America. And I'm sure we'll touch on that today as well, that diversity, quote, quote, is indeed a global question. And it's an opportunity for all of us to actually learn across difference and to be inspired by difference rather than to try to control it or manage it as though it's a problem to be overcome. So that's just a little bit about me and my approach and I'm very, very excited to speak about gender specifically. To me, it's one of the sort of least discussed components um, often in North America and I'm still a Fantastic. It's, it's amazing. First of all, it's amazing to have both of you. Uh, I have a very direct question, uh, Sarah, Rita. What makes, what made you and what makes you today who you are? It's a tough question. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I think everything that I've ever done in my entire life, what I'm doing now, is because 
of my journey because of my experiences. Um, so, for example, with me, I, I started off in banking um, and I got into diversity inclusion because, I, as I mentioned, I was the only at the time woman on the um, pan euro sales trading desk in London um, for a while. And so I've been actually in the diversity and inclusion space for, oh gosh, it's been well over two decades now. We're coming on to, coming on to a quarter of a century, given my age away there almost. Um, so it was very much in terms of just that gender equality space, which I was in, and various functions through my life. You know, as a, um, an, a, an American now, with British origin, with Assamese heritage growing up in the UK, where quite often, you know, I came from a cultural background where my parents came from a background where quite often women weren't working, women's voices weren't heard, um, were respected, but weren't heard in a certain way. You know, women were the caregivers, they weren't the breadwinners. And then that philosophy came with them to the UK. My parents have always been so supportive in my career. And then I sort of, I guess, from my perspective, I didn't go down the traditional route. You know, my parents are like, you're going to be a doctor. My dad is a doctor, my mum's from the same field my whole family are. And I did actually study it to start with, and then I quit after two years. So I think in my instance, my journey started when I started to acknowledge the answer of the feeling of the word no, and to take empowerment and take your life into your own decisions and being able to tell your own story and what you're about from your own personal experiences. And I didn't realize that until I was in the situation. Otherwise, it was all theory. And I think everything in my life that I've done has been because of my practical experiences like that. Whether, fast forward, it was a motherhood journey, whether it was being, you know, the only, you know, um, person of a minority background in, in a room full of, of white men trying to pitch some philosophy or some sort of concept and people understood what I was saying was right, then they weren't resonating. Or I walk in the room for the first time and the first thing people see, because it only takes six seconds Want to research to make your mind about somebody. I was just a pretty, pretty face in a in a business suit, rather than what it was to say. So through those experiences, my life experiences taught me to sort of how do you turn things on its head? How do you change that bias? How can you take control of the narrative and change people's perceptions and their perspective to define your own reality? Because as people say, perception is reality. But how do you change that? So my entire philosophy when I go to organizations, when I coach women, when I'm coaching CEOs of companies about how they see diversity, equity, inclusion is about literally changing that narrative on its head to start from scratch. So that's really what it's been about. It's a long-winded answer to your question, Yale, but you know, I have so many stories and ways of answering that that you know, just I'll leave you with that for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> considered 
you know, other or unusual. Now, I've been really fortunate. People have, you know, just to go with a parent before, been very complimentary, right? And in other ways in my life, people have been mostly complimentary and supportive. So I don't want to, you know, claim some sort of huge encumberment, um, you know, in my life's experience. But I will say that it's it's easy to notice the ways in which people um, want to soothe their own, again, I'll sort of re- reference back to anxiety, want to soothe their own curiosities or anxieties and say, oh, if I can pigeonhole you or if I can put you in this box, then I feel better because I know what I want. And so that asking that question of how do we become more relational of who you are as a, as a full entity and who I am as a full entity, and when we come together in that spirit, I, it might sound cheesy, but I truly think that that's when human beings can accomplish literally anything. And so that's sort of become my, my obsession over the years. That's that's amazing, actually, because all of us, all three of us, um, have somehow a, a very specific ability to interpret things. Uh, I mean, envir- if, if we are looking at the environment that we evolved somehow, and I grew up in a, in a very changing environment, I grew up between two countries, two extremely different cultures, um, traveled a lot from a very young age and, you know, I had a lot of different kind of experiences. Um, and, and at some point, I think it was maybe, uh, from maybe 20, 25 years old, I had to understand very, very fast that maturity is the key to open the next door. And when you grow, when you grow up actually in between, you know, two different cultures, home, what you're talking, you know, three languages, uh, um, it's, it's, it brings you a lot of openness and awareness that nobody is equal to nobody else. I think that the very basic today, if I, if I look at what's happening, you know, with the TikTok, uh, apps, you know, Instagram and everything. These are the tools that somehow bring what is missing in the households for the kids regarding what's going on all around the world. And we spoke about that, I think, Rita, on the, during our previous podcast. And I think that it's, it's not a bad thing that, uh, the technology brings into the household, what's going on outside, because it, it brings openness, it brings, you know, new views, but somehow, um, and that's related to what you said, Sarah, I think that the key to step up as a girl, and then after as a young lady into uh, a, a complicated, a complex world with different kinds of societies, actually, uh, requires a lot of uh, confidence and and somehow a lot of inner power that we have to unleash and we cannot do that so fast because when you grow up you know you, you know in the maturity in, in the in the in the maturity and then after you you have to um, get into the university you have to learn something new you discover your new uh, camarades and you discover new uh, perspectives, it's very, very complicated and it's going to be even more complicated because of the plurality of and diversity of, of disciplines that we have to learn uh, as we grow. I think that we're getting into a world that requires to know a lot of languages, a lot of cultures, understand and acknowledge that everything is infinite um, and we have to be even more specific in what we want to do and where we want to go uh, to convince the others uh, or to join us or to join them. Um, and leadership is not the leadership that we had, you know, 50 years ago or maybe 15 years ago. Um, and we have to learn what's leadership today and maybe build it from the scratch. And I mean, that's part of the confidence and the motivation as, as a girl, as, as, as a woman today to shape what we want and the way we want to see the world. Yeah. Um, and that's not something that you learn at school or at home, actually. Uh, and we have to equip, I mean, the future generation. Or they have to equip themselves. 
So I'm thinking a lot about that, actually. Yeah. And um, I mean, what's your experience? What's the key thing? Maybe you can share uh, with the audience what what was maybe not too much uh, personal, but what was the key to unlock the that that thing uh, that made that made you um, who you are today. I think, um, I know you said not to go too much into the personal, um, but I think the key, certainly for me, is identity, yeah. which stems into intersectionality and stems actually into leadership as well. For me, for example, you know, I grew up in the UK in a very lily white neighborhood. Um, so I was the only brown girl um, in my you know, white class when I was five years old. At the same time, at weekends, my parents signed me up for South Indian classical Indian dancing. So now I went at the weekends in the six, so Monday to Friday, I was with the brown girl in a white classroom. At the weekends, I was the fairest, the South Indian classmates are generally a darker skin tone to mine. So now I was the fairest in a dark skin tone and they wouldn't talk to me. I would be, you know, left out of invited to birthday parties and they just wouldn't talk to me. So for me, I was like, I, I was battling, like, who who am I? Yeah. You know, what does it mean to be Indian? Because I was just branded as the Indian kid. But, you know, my heritage is from Assam in the northeast. We're from an Aryan race. We're not Dravidian, which is the other part of India, which a lot of people ignore. We're actually two very different races. I was trying to fit in, do what I could, and it was very, very difficult. So I think part of that and learning from a very young age to how to infiltrate the other side. I don't think people were being racist as such. They're too young. We're talking about five, six-year-olds. You know, maybe their parents were in a different background, but from their perspective, we would have conversations about, you know, things on TV, superheroes or whatever. Um, but it was almost like that sense of belonging. How do you find you get a sense of belonging? So I became very empathetic from a very young age, and I found ways of almost just befriending folks that wouldn't accept me. I would find ways of sort of getting into the circle, like, oh, they walk a certain way, or they put their hand like this, or they do that, or, oh, they all plait their hair in a certain way. You know, think whatever it was to almost try to fit in. So it became very much of an area of trying to fit in initially, but that was almost how to find my identity. And then that was really used to fast forward in my life of how I used to sort of get into situations and have conversations with folks that historically had a very different viewpoint to me. You know, I got into debating, and one good thing about being on a debating team is you suddenly have to pull out either side of the, either side of the argument, but you don't know which until you get on stage. And that, for me, taught me a lot, because, okay, I personally might have had a certain viewpoint, but I almost have to hide that to put the other side, depending on what I was called upon. So I think that's, in a way, taught me to be who I am and why I became my work, where I was. Because in the work I do, yeah, when I go into boardrooms, when I have to go and almost even out divides after the US elections happened, after an incident happened, um, the George Floyd incident happened a year ago now in the States, there was a big divide in a lot of boardrooms of companies in the US in particular. And that divide I was caught into fix. I was just told to come and fix the divide. You know, that was, you know, my, my job. And I was like, what do you mean by fix exactly? Well, we want you to come in and tell, and I'm going to exaggerate here just to give you the example, that you go in and you tell all of the white people that they've got white privilege, they're bad, and all the black people that, you know, we're we sorry, we understand, how can we help your communities? In that way, it was almost causing the divide even further, what people don't realize. So in this level of globalization and digital media that you mentioned, it's helping by spreading awareness, but it's also very divisive. Yeah, and Sarah, so yeah. one thing I saw is that I am not going to go in to tell people they're bad or they're wrong. I'm going to listen and understand. And one thing they're not doing is understanding different viewpoints and where they come across. And that came from a direct result of my upbringing and sort of infiltrating, understand how do I get in there? How do I get in the head of somebody else who I have no idea who they are, mm -hmm. but understand them as though they were my, as though they were me when I left the room. And it's exactly the same thing in my trainings today. I get to the level of where it's almost like you've got to listen, take a step back to understand. Not just listen and truly understand. Understand where were they coming from? Why do they think that way? Yeah. You don't have to agree with it at all, but understand. One thing that's missing 
And this whole DEI debate around the world is just the understanding, the empathy before we react. In the age of empowerment that we're all in today, there's a fine line between empowerment and entitlement. We've all been asked to, you know, raise our voice, speak up when we feel right. Yes, that's what empowerment is. But empowerment is about first, before you speak up, to feel confident, to feel you've got in charge. You've got to take a step back to stop. You listen first, you digest the information, and then you feel empowered to react. Entitlement doesn't do that, you just react. So that's unfortunately what's been going on a lot, and it's just big things. So even though we're progressing in so many ways, we're actually falling back in so many other ways too. Yeah, yeah. I can relate to everything that you said. Um, it's, it's really important, and Ruth saying that reactivity, awareness, uh, multifocuses, I would say, being aware about what's going on outside and inside also, because it's not easy to interpret what's going on on the emotional side when you're young and where, when you're different and where um, you're kind of someone that is not um, within the rules or... Um, inside a certain framework and, and can uh, and can just get into it because somehow you don't know that you have to cultivate your difference. And this is something that is very privileged to do today. Um, you know, I, for, for my personal experience, I was always different. Every situation, every year, every environment I got into um, or every group I was into, um, was in France, it was in the UK, it was here in Israel or anywhere. I was always different, uh, somehow. Um, and, and, and this is something that I didn't know until a very, uh, late time, late moment of my life that I have to cultivate my difference. And I have to prove not only to the others, but also to myself that I'm also capable to do things even better than the others. And it takes a long time. I'm not the only one to, to, to share this experience because it takes a long time. It's really, it's really about courage. It's really about, um, selflessness. It's really about being, um, okay with yourself and recognize your values. And this is something that you don't know actually until you get some experience and you learn to, to, to be the one that is not only different but also brings value um, and, and, and I see that a lot I mean I hear a lot of people inside corporation inside institutions or leading you know some groups or organizations telling the others uh, how to do that because it's not something that you if you're not learning it you, you, you by yourself you will never know um, and, and you know a lot of organizations I see, especially in tech or in finance also, tell you, cultivate your difference. What does it mean? Is it about diversity? Is it about inclusion? Or is it about bringing a new shape or a new balance to the organization to make it more flexible, making more mature or leading the way that the organization is also accepting the difference, which is not something that was uh, so inherent in our society in the in during you know the past fifty years, um, and that was a question actually that we spoke about. I mean, Sarah, you had this conversation with Yangbo, um, precisely about these points. What should we? What do we have to do to? to bring value to the table what are what is expected from us in the society and in the in the in the business environment uh, to to lead a new way to to be not only a number or an employee but a person that is uh, legitimate to express herself so who we are isn't that the great question? So I'll maybe go backwards in my answer because I loved uh, what Rita shared about the difference between responding and reacting. And I, for me, another way to, to kind of frame that, that answer is around value. 
do I actually need to open my mouth right now? Like, is this helpful for the team, for the group, for the project, for, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not asking people to self-stifle. That's not the argument I'm making. But there's a huge difference between sort of blurting something out to soothe my ego in the moment versus saying, you know, I feel really expressed when I offer this to the group. Even if maybe the group kind of know that, that's okay. You know, that's where we get psychological safety, right? It's not about agreeing yeah. or about, um, you know, kissing someone's butt or, uh, you know, not being contentious. It's about this actually in service of something bigger than just, you know, making myself feel slightly shinier for two seconds, right? So that's that's sort of one, uh, I think, self-checking that literally anybody can do at any point in time in a, in a boardroom, in a, in a team check-in. Know, while doing your own work, etc. Um, but but kind of you know, <laughs> time machining it back for for a minute. Um, you know, again, listening to your incredible story, Rita, about how you grew up and, and sort of the different environments that you were in, I found myself reflecting on um, you know, being a privileged white woman growing up in an upper middle class suburb of Boston. Uh, you know, being on the sort of college slash higher education track from a very very young age. You know, growing up around a lot of um, you know socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomically mobile uh, situations, we'll just put it that way. And, and yet, part of what formed who I became uh, were two women in my life, right? My mom and my grandma. Um, and a lot of uh, you know nodding in, in recognition there. Um, so on the one hand, my grandmother. Uh, was Jewish. She's passed now, but she she was Jewish, and she grew up during the Great Depression. And I learned a lot about what it meant to experience joy in the face of hardship and pain from her. And then I also watched her, uh, you know, eventually begin to travel the world uh, in her fifties. Actually, she had never had the means to do this before, and she also then began to host international travelers who she met in our home. So starting at a very, very young age, you know, even in my own house, I would hear different languages, right? I would hear discussions about, you know, Istanbul or Paraguay. And I'm going, you know, little Sarah's like, where is that? I've never heard that word before, you know? And they would sort of take out the map and show me and tell me stories and, and whatnot. And I didn't realize it at the time, but <laughs> that, that experience really gave me the sense that I'm part of something much, much bigger than me. And it's not about me. Right, I am uh, fortunate that I get to sort of be part of this now eight billion person planet. Who do I want to show up as? So I started asking that at, at, at a very young age. Now, in parallel, maybe the, the sort of more contentious side of that is that my mom, uh, she has not passed, she's still with us, but she's retired now. She taught English as a second language for children uh, for about 45 years. And what was interesting about that is that you know my, my mom is you know phenotypically white. She comes uh, from a uh, an Irish and Polish background, and and also she was frequently microaggressed and frequently um, you know her expertise was questioned or she was sort of you know, there were implicit or explicit uh, accusations that she was some kind of you know race traitor etc because she was working with immigrants or people who you know, were on visas or green cards from literally around the world right and, you know, she had somebody from from everywhere over the course of 45 years and many many of these children right we're talking 9 10 11 year olds didn't speak any English um, in some cases their parents were not able to be with them that you know depend on the situation and so it I also started to learn at this young age that, you know, on the one hand, we could have this sort of, you know, global, a very sort of beautiful global, you know, home environment. And then we could also sort of look out into the world and, and see, you know, other professional educators, mind you, not random people on the street, implying that, you know, it was, it was somehow treacherous to be welcoming to, you know, a Chinese family who didn't speak any English or that it was somehow... Uh, you know, corrosive to our culture if, uh, you know, my mom was speaking Spanish to, which she, she learned uh, in, in her 20s and, and retained it to, you know, a, a family who had just arrived from Venezuela, for example. And so sort of seeing that contrast, I started to learn, you know, maybe at five or six, like, ooh, okay, 
not everybody feels, uh, you know, to your point about belonging, not everybody feels like they want to facilitate a sense of belonging for others. Now, do I have any answers to that? I'm not going to claim that I have some sort of, you know, magical leadership answer that we can all walk away from today. But what I will say about that is that I do believe that a process of asking those questions is helpful to most people. You know, why is it that I feel X, Y, and Z about my community? Or why is it that I feel equipped to welcome others who, you know, may or may not speak the same language as me, or may not look the same as me, or may or may not you know, worship the same as me? So I do believe that for human beings, we kind of need like a gestation period almost of asking those questions, asking who am I and who am I most importantly in context of these, you know, 8 billion other human beings who I cohabitate with. I can say like, we're all roommates, right? Like this is a very tiny planet and, you know, we have like 8 billion roommates who like to get along with them. That sounds much more pleasant than uh, than fighting personally. I hope that answers your question. No, I'm not sure that it did. <laughs> it opens it opens the door actually, and thank you, Sarah, because it opens the door to you know we spoke about values and we spoke about how to express us, ourselves from the very long young age. But you know, when I go to when I, I, I go on the on the TikTok and I slide to see, you know, all these young girls uh singing and dancing, you know, it, it's their confidence is just impressive, first of all. I mean, I, I don't remember myself, you know, being able to dance in front, in front of, you know, um, anybody. And, and, and I think that, you know, this is the, this is the, the, the difference right now with the, the new generation. They have all the tools that, I mean, we didn't get. Um, and somehow we are fortunate that we knew what's going on outside of the virtual world before. Something that's the, I mean, the kids today ask them, they don't even know what's going on, you know, if it's not virtual. Let's be honest. And, and, and schools and, and, and classes are becoming also virtual. So, which is, I think on that point, it's, it's, it's very confusing at some, at some point because the, the groups and you know uh, and what we learned and how we learned to behave in a, in a, in the society taught us a lot more than what they are learning right now. Um, in terms of exchanges, in terms of conversation, in terms of curiosity, in terms of everything. But this is the this is the thing here. Um, I think the household has a responsibility to bring the world home. And I think the business environment has this responsibility to continue, but we have to be able to understand where to go and how to behave in, in order to bring what we've learned home in terms of cultures, in terms of values, in terms of exchanges, and bring it to the business. Because when we speak about blended models, and that's precisely what we want to unleash now. When we speak about new, bl- new, new blended models in the society, new business models, um, and, and the paradigm shift that currently the crisis brought us is also about bringing the values of protection, of empathy, as Rita mentioned, about uh, gratitude that we have to provide because if you look at if you look at what's happening in the in the corporate world today, or I mean overall in the business world, everybody is behind the screen. Almost the world got all the world got stuck behind screens. So where is the emotional point? Where is the human side? Where is the conversation heading to uh, when you're behind the virtual world, which which leads us back to what's going on with the kids today? And the students also. The students were, I mean, almost globally, all the students were uh, shouting the same message. They want to get back to the university. They want to learn in the classrooms. And and this is something that is overcrying today. I mean, it's overshouting everywhere. You hear people that want to get back to humanity. Uh, is it about a social thing or is it something that is more about feeling that you live 
of feeling being present. I, I mean, all those questions are legitimate. I mean, actually, to ask and is it is it is it the right thing to do to uh, convert the companies the the physical spaces into the virtual space? Is it is it is it right to bring um, the work at home? All these questions are profound and are changing deeply our society. And I think that that's, that here, right now, the crisis is not over. It's ongoing because it's going to lead to many other confusing points or, or new biases. We're trying to fix the biases from the previous age, but actually we're going to have to lead uh, to, 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 to face new biases from our current crisis. And, and that's my question today. I mean, what do we need as human values? Because I'm, I'm, I'm one of those that believe that, you know, nature um, and, and, and actually provides almost everything that we need uh, by default and by essence. But on, the, on, our, on our human side, on, on the societal side, on the emotional side, what is our responsibility to bring the society not back to the previous normal, but to a better normal. And I'm um, and 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 here we are, and I and I profoundly believe that that's the role of the woman today to do that, um, because I think that we have all the tools to do that. Do we want it? I don't know. That's my question. So, and and that's that's really, I mean, that's limitless. Here's is is the is the point about why do we want so much to lead the way? Why do we want so much to fight ego today as women? Why do we want so much to be bold, first of all as human beings, and and then after you know as as women? And what are the responsibility that we have to endorse on the long way to keep going because it's a lot. It's a lot to change the society. It's a long. It's a lot to change your uh, your culture. It's a lot to bring culture. It's a lot to lead a family. It's a lot. I mean, it requires a lot of courage, a, a lot of things and forces, inner forces that we have. So I, I'm I'm just asking: Do we have them available? And how, how, how do we make them available? And what do we need? What are the tools? Who are the people that we have to be surrounded by? I think it's really interesting how you put all that together. It's such a profound statement that's engulfed us all, you know, especially over the last year or so. But I think one way of looking at it is us as a society, us as a race, us as humans, and how we are made we are creatures of habit. Generally, humans, we don't like risk. We like where we are. But we're also creatures of validation. Yeah. Now, this has not changed through centuries ever. And I'll give you an example. When you mentioned here earlier on that we see these girls on, like, TikTok or Snapchat or Insta stories just promoting themselves, it does look amazing and confident. But remember, they're validating how many likes they get. At the same time as this digital era has gone up, cyberbullying has also gone up tenfold in that same space. And a lot of it is because of the amount of likes, validations, comments that people are getting at the same time. So are they doing it because they feel confident to talk about or to dance or to sing the story? Are they doing it to try and validate themselves on a platform? And that's the thing. We are all validating ourselves in different ways. We want that validation. You know, um, it, and this goes across cultures, it goes across socioeconomics, it goes across everything. For example, there could be a conversation at home about um, why did you do that or, you know, don't do that because what are, your what are our neighbours going to think? Or, uh, oh, if you fail your exams, oh my gosh, what are so-and-so going to think? Rather than, oh my gosh, great job, you did such a good job on that, how about we try a little harder next time? How, what, can, what can I do to help you improve? You know, it's all about what do others think. Exactly. When managers, leaders get DEI training, do they really want it? My first question is, why do you want this? When I go into any company, my first question is, why are you doing this? They're like, huh? Is it because they're trying to check a box? 
because everyone else is doing it? Or is it because there's an actual mission-driven statement that's within their cultural values that they're trying to do it for? And we're trying to get to the latter here. So it's everything about society in general. Everything needs validation in a separate, in a different way. So in one way, and it's, there's no easy answer to this yet, otherwise it would have been solved by now. Um, <laughs> exactly. But I would say there's a couple of ways. One, um, and this is a lot of the work I do, actually. So it's all about, because we know we're in a validated society, we're not going to go against the grain. A leopard cannot change its spots, for example. But what can we do to empower the individual so they get true confidence, true confidence as in when somebody gives a negative thought, feedback, whatever it is, you understand how to process and digest that information so you don't crumble at the first sight. When you fall over in the playground as a child, you get back up, you know? You don't just get a medal for every little victory or achievement, you actually get it because you've earned it. There's a difference there. And schooling today, if, you know, part of the past as well, it's a very different kind of education system. Everyone gets a medal for everything. You know, so it's almost like, how do you get people to really feel that confidence, that true empowerment? Because it does, to your point, you know, it starts at childhood, it starts as a baby. And uh, this is something we, we actually um, might have mentioned on the podcast, for example, you know, and I see this a lot, you know, um, go to a playground and I see, you know, little girls and little boys on the playground. And these are like three years, two and three years. The girl falls down, the caregiver, the parent, whoever it is, oh my gosh, are you okay? Come here, let me see. The boy falls down, says, oh, come on, you can, you go back and try again. So they're hearing these messages from childhood, these gender discrepancies happening from childhood. In my own friend circle, you know, it was um, during the pandemic, we have a pod of friends and my daughter's birthday is, you know, toward the end of the year. She's like, you know, a Christmas baby. And so she never gets to really celebrate with her friends because school finishes. So we were celebrating with our pod, and in our pod, they all have sons. So they're like, oh, what does your daughter, you know, want, want to get? And I said, well, she's into Formula One, she's into this, she loves superheroes and stuff like that. They heard she's into dolls, she likes playing dress-up because they don't have daughters, and it's their dream to gift a girl. So they all got her Barbie dolls and stuff like that. She said thank you, she was really happy to get them. But within the day, they were all broken because she used them to, for sword fighting. <laughs> she used them because that's her personality. So my point being is that these gender stereotypes, and these are totally empowered, gender neutral, I'm fighting for equality, feminist friends of mine. But you see where I'm coming from. It's because of our own biases and own wants. We're doing this to ourselves. We're in a society of validation. We're in a society where we're almost talking ourselves out of hearing what somebody is saying. You know, and we're almost trying to change the narrative, so it's just a matter of taking back. So it's almost like if we start from that crux, that matter of understanding who we are, we go back to that root, that identity piece, who are we? You be comfortable about who you are, and you can't, this doesn't happen in one day. You know, adolescence happens, you're constantly toying between one idea and another. This could take years and many life experiences. Exactly, yeah. Coming out from a place of understanding, mm. love, wow, 
where have you built that? That's quite amazing, actually. Well, I'm, I'm impressed. You know, tell me about it. But you know what? We've got to clear up some of this area. How about we move this aside and we can take care of that project for another time? Or let me take some pictures so we can save it in our memories forever and let's do something else. So it's a way of doing it. It's how you're doing it for the overall and aim of getting people to stand on their own two feet and really, really take it, take acknowledgement and ownership of the issue. Yeah. One of the... One of the arenas that I sort of hear this debate happening is, and I believe that you and I spoke about this a bit with uh, Yangbo uh, recently, is this debate between the sort of hierarchical organization and the matrix organization. And if I'm honest, I don't really buy that this change really happening. I think it's happening by name, and I think it's happening by desire. I do believe that there's a tremendous desire on the part of you know, again, I'm, I'm doing this partially observationally, right, with CEOs and executive teams I work with, and partially from, from research, um, that there's this tremendous desire to be part of the solution, right? Everybody sort of wants to feel like, oh, I'm going to create, or be a portion of creating this incredibly inclusive, you know, environment where the whole team is going to thrive. But we're still going to have titles, we're still going to have pay discrepancies, we're not necessarily going to look at who is or is not looking to or valued. Uh, and, and so I think a lot of sort of CEOs and you know, SVPs, et cetera, stay in, in this trap of, um, of sort of revalidating their own methods and then sort of sticking names on things. Right? Well, we have employee resource groups, so therefore people can feel included. That's just... Those are just names for things. <laughs> that has nothing to do with what the human being is experiencing when they're actually at that employee resource group. Or then, for that matter, leave that virtual or in-person room, right, and sort of re-enter the, the, the rest of the, the meeting or the rest of the work experience. Or they might say something like, well, you know, now we're doing these 360 reviews or this new process where, you know, we're kind of uh, evaluating the emotional labor alongside sort of traditional forms of labor, but then who actually is deciding what is labor anyway? So, you know, all of this is to say the desire in and of itself, and I'm going to be like a little bit crass, not to be crude, but to kind of make a point. Like in human physiology, right? If there's desire, there's like a tumescence. And if you think about the, the way that that happens, like energetically in an organization, it means that something is either going to become really uncomfortable on the part of leadership, where leadership is is like sort of ready to burst, if you will, and they, they really, 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 really want their teams to feel included. And, and it, it almost becomes this like pent-up energy, um, rather than inviting people into the process and preparing themselves, to Rita's point about, you know, it all begins with the self, preparing themselves to be a, uh, a conductor of, of an environment in which everybody else can kind of nurture themselves. Because on the other hand, you can't actually make your team step up into, into a, a sort of leadership type position either. That also has to come from themselves. But what folks at the top can do is to create that environment. Now, what does that not look like? It does not look like showing up and saying, hey, everyone, I declare this is a safe space. It cracks up every single time. That does not work. That's not how a safe space is created. It's created through demonstrating that you are more dedicated and more in love with, frankly, having an environment of psychological safety, of belonging, where people can actually show up and articulate their experience and articulate solutions, or at the very least, things that they'd like to try, right? So we can all kind of workshop it together. That, that being in love with that process is really about where the leadership comes into play. It's not about the strategic plan on paper. It's not about your glossy two-pager that you're going to stick on your website. It's not about you know your emblem that talks about your amazing culture. All of that is a reminder of your desire rather than a demonstration that you are totally, totally dedicated to the process of co-creating it together. Again, I hope that that answers your, your question. I know I mean, it, it is, it's, it's, um, and first of all, thank you because it highlights a lot of, um, soft skills or, uh, inner talents and, or hidden talents that are not on the paper, 
when you get into a company that are looking, you know, out for many skills and validate, uh, as Rita mentioned, you know, validate the, 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 the precise um, path to get the job. Uh, it doesn't mean that, yes, you're uh, a tough leader or uh, someone that is very open. I mean, that's the, that's the job of the HR. And I mean, that's to detect these things. But again, that requires a lot of leadership. And I'm not sure that leadership today is at its best in terms of expression and in terms of willingness and in terms of restructuration and collaboration that is highly required for, you know, for, for these times. So, um, yeah. There's just a thing perhaps I'll add in real quick. And, and that is simply more. And I, I would guess that each of you have heard some version of this as well. But a lot of leaders are afraid that if they show that they don't have the answers and they don't quite know what they're doing or you know, they're nervous about a change process, that that will somehow invalidate their leadership to the team. But all of the research shows that the team already sees how fallible they are. They already see their weaknesses. And frankly, the team is just craving and waiting for that person to show up and go, you know what? I have absolutely no idea how to tackle this. Will you help? You know, it's it, they're, they're, they're hungry. That Your team is hungry to hear that you know that you don't have the answers and that that's okay. And that also you're so confident in your own leadership, frankly, that you're not going to crumble or die of embarrassment or, you know, think that your team is trying to oust you in some sort of, you know, violent coup because you don't necessarily have all of the answers. <laughs> the vigorous nodding. Yeah, I'm really nodding my head there because I'm like literally agree with everything you said. And to your point, it's you know leadership has changed yes. as we've gone ahead in time. You know, once upon a time, leadership was very much based upon you know IQ was the one measuring fact. What did you score in this test? How did you do that? It's very black and white. And then a few kind of you know a couple of decades later came the EQ, the emotional quotient. How are you in terms of emotions? How do you do this? In the birth of the 360 reviews and things like that come now more we have the birth of what i like to call the decency quotient and the wow. decency quotient is really almost like the addition is a bit of iq a bit of eq but it's the genuine desire of how to do right by others so to sarah's point it could be just putting your hands up and say you know what this is what i'm doing it i've had so many years of experience but you know what i just have to, i just don't know and there's nothing more pleasing to your team to hear their manager do that they actually respect you more the research says what has shown that they respect you more for that they're less likely to leave the workforce you're going to in increase retention statistics 79 percent of people leave the workforce because they don't trust their leadership yes. they feel like they're not valued they feel like they don't feel that sense of belonging it ultimately comes from because they think they have that bad boss you might have a company that has the amazing sort of diverse inclusion like banner are strewn across the website, but if your leader doesn't get it, they're going to leave. So to the point of this, it needs to be more kind of that transparent, the more humane approach, that decency that I love to coin that phrase, that decency quotient, because it's really an amalgamation of what we've taken in the past. It's not one for the other. Historically, people confuse leadership. Oh, you're moving from this to that? Mm, it's a combination of that. And here's the other thing. Traditionally, we had a lot of males in leadership. It was very black and white. It's this or that, wrong or right. Then the empathy came in. Women have been shown to have a lot of the empathy. Decency on the other hand, men and women both have, women more so. Decency is the genuine desire to do right by others. And there are so many male managers that has that, they just do not know how to kind of open that side of them. Women do it a bit more naturally. So in this age of leadership, it's all about coming together. Not about changing how you start, or not about changing how you speak to your team to be a bit more masculine, a bit more feminine. In leadership, it's all about the style of doing it. Can you delegate? Can you involve your team? How do they feel like they're taking ownership of the task at hand? They take it's ownership, amazing. they really understand it. It becomes theirs and they care about it more than you do. And that's what you want. I, I also, I'm curious actually, if I may pose a bit of a question, if that's okay, yeah. Go I'm, ahead, I'm it's yours. 
Yeah, I, I do believe that there's a lot of confusion within leadership about how to showcase a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, Rita, you know, you're sitting down with a with CEO or an executive team or, you know, a bunch of managers or something, and they're sort of agreeing with everything, and they're going, that makes sense, and yes, I want to do that, and they go, will you tell me what to do? Like, give me, you know, a checklist or a little, you know, paint-by-numbers situation. And, and you know, there are many different sort of activities and exercises and trainings that I do, and I'm sure you do as well. But one of the things that I, I do showcase, or try, I hope to showcase, um, is that, it, again, it's not about declaring something. It's simply deciding to sort of assume the position. And I've particularly done this around questions from uh, a lot of these sort of all white boards of directors that I've worked with, you know, all white management teams that I've coached around allyship. You know, I recently, I really want to be an ally. What do I do? You know, <laughs> so there's again like a, an A B C D, and and uh, you know, I'm like, hey, if it makes you feel good, sure, make a donation or read a book. I'm not saying don't do those things, but again, it's that process of literally like assuming the position because. If, if you're doing it on a surface level, you're going to stop when the crisis is over, or you're going to stop, you know, you're going to read the book and then say, I'm done. You're going to make the donation and say, I'm done. You're going to say, great, now we're funding employee resource groups. Okay, we're done. Um, and whereas if you're, if you're deciding to embody the, uh, the sort of ongoing stance of an ally, which I would argue is a sort of leadership role of sorts, um, it's really about checking in and saying, you know, what kind of a coworker do I want? Not even manager necessarily, not even leader. What kind of coworker do I want to be? What kind of employee do I want to be? You know, what is my role when it comes to power flows within this organization? And then what kind of power flow does this organization and its programs, products, and projects have within the larger world? And to me, it really is sort of more of that, like, philosophical or internal reorientation that's way more impactful in the long run than donating to NAACP depends on, which by the way, go for it, I'm not saying that's not quite the point. So I, I, that's sort of um, my conceptualization of it, but I'd love to hear what else you think. And I'm nodding with that one as well, because we had the exact same example two weeks ago, one of my clients, very large tech company uh, comes to me saying, you know, I, I want to be a better ally for this particular cause, I'm, I'm about to write the check to this company. The first thing I did was like, don't write that check. The first question I asked everybody is, what is your why yep. behind doing this? Right. What is your why? Why are you wanting to do this? Yes, the word allyship is out there right now. Yes, it is. It's a word. What does it mean to you? Why is it important? What are you trying to do for this? And it's almost like getting into the mind of it. And it's when I go back to talking about the decency question again, it's having the genuine desire to do right by others. So I said, okay, that foundation that you want to donate to, let's make an appointment. Let's get yourself and your family and get a couple of colleagues. You're going to go there or we're going to Zoom there. We're going to actually get into that company and you're going to volunteer your services, not just once, over a series of times. So that the fund that you're going to give isn't just a fund. You're going to understand what you're doing, how it's making an impact, and why. Because that's the whole point of this. If you want to understand allyship, be an ally, not just writing a check. You've got to get in there. You've got to get your feet wet. You've got to get action, understand it. You want to support a cause, understand the cause. You've got to, by the end of it, understand how does that cause affect you. And if we left it like that, we have another meeting in a week. We're going to find out how it's going to go on. And our next thing is, that how did it affect you? What does it mean to you? Because that's all part of it. Really changing the theory into practice and they're two different things. One, absolutely, it's a validation thing. It looks good from outside. Mm-hmm. It's going to go down in the papers. It'll be great on the next quarterly report. So, so we've you know, donated this amount to da-da-da. But from yourself and actually doing something, it's going to be so much more valuable, not just to what you're doing and actually help the cause, but to you, your leadership and your entire organization but you actually donating your actual time to do something there. Yeah, this is precisely the, the difference between the society of validation and the inner self. What you're see, saying is here is that it's easier to get the validation from the external environment 
than my own validation to create something. And, and this is why, I mean, that's precisely the question. Why and how and where do you want to go with all these things? And this is precisely missing in the society right now. I, I just wrote a piece that's coming out, uh, I believe, in about a month um, for the Society of Human Resource Managers. And it's, it, came, it was stimulated because of a specific conversation I had about six months ago uh, with a chief people officer who was completely overwhelmed. They're going, I feel like Gen Z is out to get me. Right? These young people, they're so demanding. And okay, you know, let's have a little chat about it. <laughs> What's going on there? Um, and this particular person uh, was just flummoxed, just totally stopped because they're not, all right, we've, we've done a diversity statement, we've done XYZ donations, we again have our research, I forget what else they've done, a couple of other, you know, uh, large intergroup dialogue listening sessions or something like that. And our younger, you know, Gen Z, fresher employees, they're still not satisfied. What the hell do they want from us? You know, these young people these days. And I'm going, well, have you asked them what it feels like to show up at, at work? You know, have you asked them what their experience is at your company? And and they're sort of stuck on, you know, these, these whippersnappers want us to become social justice warriors. We're just a company. You know, we create this particular app and this particular suite of software. Like, that's what we do. That's why we exist. And, and they're making this sort of claim that that's their why. And I'm saying, well, if your only why, literally your only why to exist is to churn out product and to take in money, how long do you think that's going to last? Do you really think that's future-proof? Do you really think that's crisis-proof? Do you really think that's you know an invitation to your team? And they, they kind of stared at me like, oh, crap, you know. <laughs> You know, it's one of those moments where you're sort of holding space for that, that uh, you know, that, that's, um, I guess, just concept to, to sink in. And, you know, do, again, do I have all of the answers? No, of course not. I mean, Gen Z, I, I, I'm throwing that term around like that's one single person. He wants to be complaining, right? Of course, that, that's not how this works. But I, I do think that there's this um, imperative on all of our parts to do when we, when we consider inclusion, when we consider diversity, Think about you know things like generation and age or worldview. Um, maybe maybe some of those components that that are a little bit more changeable, you know, or a little bit more malleable. Because that twenty five year old is of course going to be twenty five much longer, right? They're going they're going to change, and then with that, their worldview is going to change, their experience is going to change. But the one consistency is to sort of invite them into the strategy formation. If it's simply, oh, I'm going to, you know, reach out to somebody because I pigeonhole them as, in this case, Gen Z, oh, I'll ask them for tips on TikTok, right? Or, you know, perhaps if it's somebody who's a veteran, you know, oh, I'll ask them for, you know, feedback on, you know, hierarchical structures or something. It, it can't be that sort of one-trick pony situation. There has to be this larger invitation into, like, please, please shape us, please help inform us. You know, how can I learn from you better um, rather than this, this sort of virtue signaling thing that uh, Rita that you were just mentioning? Well, amazing. One last word, Sarah, Rita. Please go for it. You know, I think just go back to the whole understanding of identity when we talk about diversity, equity, equality, inclusion, belonging, decency, the list can go on. Ultimately, it's about what does it mean? to you as a person, having your own understanding of who you are, as a company as well, what is your ultimate value system, which comes from the first, first day, the founders founded the company, what is the identity of the company? For you as a family unit, about to start a family for the first time, it's that what is your value system now as partnership together? You know, it all comes from that, setting that tone early on. When you have kids for the first time, set that tone early on, it's understanding that identity of value system, because it's all about that empowerment journey, it's all about feeling that confidence, and that really starts from understanding your own identity. Mm. I love that. I think just all of us here, I know, live this every single day. Uh, really, women lifting up other women, I seriously am so inspired by both of you, I'm really thankful for our time together. 
this morning, afternoon, evening. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy. Um, yeah, I look forward to, to more. And I, I think one of the places I'm at, just to get a little bit more like personal, even one of the places that I'm at is to really be just luscious in the process of learning from one another about inclusion and belonging. Because it is, at the end of the day, a human process. And the more that all of us can kind of step into that with eagerness and joy, I think we're all on the right track. Yeah, I had a long conversation earlier today also about that thing that we call generations and evolution. And as human beings, we have somehow two things that we're running after. The first one is, of course, food for survival. And the second one is about reproduction. And that question comes goes back to uh, fundamentals of we as women, you know, to build the next pillars and the next generation. Uh, what do we really want to offer and to give to the society? Um, and what do we want to get back? Somehow, should we ask for something to get back or... Is it much more about offering and giving what we have and sharing? And, and that's precisely, you know, about belonging, justice, as you mentioned, Rita. And, and it's, it's, and it's also about, yeah, I mean, um, that perspective, Sarah, you mentioned about motherhood, about being that statute, the being that representation for the society and the, and the, validation that we expect um, is all about that. So that's an open question for the audience. Um, and I'm looking forward, you know, to having you in the next in the next episode. Thank you, ladies. You're amazing. You're amazing. Thank you so much for organizing this. It's been such fun. Agreed. Absolute blast. Look forward to next time. Thank you so much. Amazing. Speak soon.